Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Today in moments, Jody Dean will help us think our way beyond the unfruitful oppositions of class and identity. It's like it's the 1990s all over again. Except in the right, where the face of energized reaction has changed from rural militias to urban neo-Nazis, melding the German import with our own native Confederate strain. At the bottom of the hour, Jason Wilson, who's been covering the far right for The Guardian, puts the Charlottesville events into context. First, Jody Dean. Jody's been on this show many times discussing, among other things, internet culture, communism, and Bernie Sanders. Lately, I've been distressed by an increase in intra-left tensions, at least as visible on social media. While I'd initially hoped that Trump's election would provoke a unity among progressive forces, the opposite looks to be the case, as old battles of class versus identity get rejoined. Mainstream Dems cynically used identity claims as a way of undermining the Sanders campaign. Economic issues, we were told, had nothing to do with undoing racism and sexism, as if racism and sexism had nothing to do with material economic relations like the job market or property ownership. With the failure of such appeals to win the election for Hillary, I'd hoped we could get beyond those unproductive exchanges, which have more the quality of taunts than debates. But I was wrong, at least by the evidence of battles on Twitter, a medium that has its charms, but which easily devolves into a toxic dump, and Facebook, or at least the branch of it known as Leftbook. It was all reminiscent to me of similar battles of the 90s. Then it was, at least among a certain set, Marxism versus postmodernism, a largely unproductive screaming match, although there were plenty of class versus identity sub-themes to it as well. That all receded as a millennium turned, but now it's looking at the forces of eternal recurrence are toying with us again. For help, I turn to Jody Dean. Not only does she manage to take race and gender as seriously as class, but she also has a temperament that can help us get beyond the morbid bickering. Jody is a professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith's Colleges in upstate New York, and author most recently of Crowds and Party from Verso. Jody Dean. I feel like almost we're back in the 1990s again, the late 90s. We're back in this class versus identity fight, uh, at least online. I don't know about the real world. Are you seeing the same thing? What do you think of it? Well, on social media, we all see this, right? Um, but I think we need to make sure that we analyze why we see it on social media. Um, as I like to talk about in my academic writing, our system can be understood in terms of communicative capitalism. And communicative capitalism values the fast circulation of everything. So on social media, this makes people write in ways that are going to get hits, shares, likes, forwards, little hearts, little thumbs up. And then this leads people to do things like speak in the most outrageous terms possible, to speak in ways that might have more profanity than usual, Um, that might be much more dismissive because people think it's wittier. And so the dynamics of social media really privilege the most extreme kinds of speech. And in some ways, I mean, it's like, it's almost like we can't help it, right? It's much harder to be polite um, and circumspect in 140 characters or less, or when you've got a massive amount of material going through your Facebook feed. So I think on the very first pass for thinking about the extreme manifestations of discussions of politics on, you know, on left book or in the broad left um, on social media is that social media is going to end up distorting how we talk about things. It's funny, actually, I remember a lot of the, uh, that, the, the struggles in the late 90s I was just describing um, as occurring on listservs. So they, they were sort of the antecedent or the ancestor of social media. 
Yeah, that's um, that makes me think of someone actually who's um, something someone said recently on my Facebook feed where they talked about cheap empowerment, right? So that um, in these kinds of online discussions, whether or not it's the listservs or contemporary social media, that people go for the little cheap, quick thrill of, oh, I'm so powerful. You know, I've been able to take this person down or establish my own credentials, my own virtue. And it's really hard to give that up, particularly when people feel disempowered, right? Everybody wants some kind of feeling like, oh, I've contributed to the struggle or I'm really in it and I want everyone to know. And the little cheap thrill of registering one's own righteousness is hard to give up. I think I might have mentioned this the first time we uh, uh, talked on the radio, but uh... Bourdieu has this little book on television in which he said that the medium, by its very nature, rewards fast thinkers, uh, and that you can't do anything that questions uh, existing assumptions uh, that goes against the conventional wisdom, because you, that would interrupt the flow of TV. I'm gathering you think that uh, the social media has really accelerated that process from the TV pace? Yeah, I think so. It's a lot harder to get people to respond to something that goes against their grain, that um, is surprising to them, that's troubling to them. So conformity, even if it's conformity within an, um, a particular milieu, is going to be rewarded, right? That's the little thrill when people are like, aha, that person has better said what I already think. You know, it's going to be a lot more fluid than something like, aha, that person has said something that deeply troubles my um, firmest convictions. And then it will always be, oh, but of course it's more complicated, right? The, the classic social media retort is, isn't that too simple or isn't it more complicated or aren't you leaving out X? As someone, again, tries to push back against what actually might be troubling. In theory, social media should be able to give us access to larger worlds than the ones we normally inhabit, but um, it also seems to encourage people to create little subcultures with and, and erect walls to keep out the uh, uh, the intruders. I mean, what about that? Is it isolating? Is it expansive? Is it both? I think it's both. One of the positive parts, I think, is letting a group or milieu or tendency start to become more present to itself, right? So like building a sense of, um, let's just say on the left, building a sense of the left is, oh, there are certain things that, um, that we actually all stand for, that we all actually agree with. And that to call that a bubble, I think it would be really dismissive. No, it's um, a collective tendency becoming present to itself. So on the one hand, that's good. And then we can sometimes see a lot of the fiercest fights around the boundary maintenance. Like, what is it that we, like that we on the left think? What is it that is going to mark um, an inside or outside view? So, of course, on the left, everyone's going to be against the KKK and against white supremacy. But then as start things start to become, I don't know, more nuanced, like, what exactly does it mean to confront white supremacy? Um, how do we do that? Then it's going to become tenser. So I think we should be... Um, appreciative of the way that social media gives us an opportunity to become clearer to ourselves about what we think, even as we recognize the worst kinds of speech practices that the media rewards. I mean, and sometimes, you know, sometimes there are good conversations. Um, they're just really, really hard to, um, really, really hard to manage. <laughs> they sometimes need a brutal moderator to direct things in the correct direction. Which, which is the beauty of the unfriend and delete function. <laughs> yes, yes. If, if only real life had a block function. <laughs> 
but to take this back to where we started, uh, you know, last year's presidential campaign, uh, the Hillary people were very cynical in their use of tropes of identity politics in order to marginalize uh, the Sanders challenge. So anything that talked about universal social democratic programs of the sort that mobilized a very large number of people, they would counter with, yes, but that doesn't do anything about racism. Um, or, you know, that uh, these Bernie bros, they don't really care about issues of gender. At the time, it seemed like a very cynical deployment of some tropes that originally developed on the left uh, against the left. Uh, but now, a year later, uh, it seems that, um, I don't know, it seems to me that some people who were very strong Sanders supporters are now nonetheless rejecting any kinds of identity claims, uh, any interest in race or gender or sexuality, as distractions from the real business of politics, which is organizing the working class. But how, do, how do you see this development, uh, the terrain? <sighs> so uh, that's a hard one. So the first thing is sometimes when people talk about their goal as being organizing the working class, that's actually not what they're doing. Because if it were really their goal... <laughs> then they would, of course, want to speak in the most inclusive ways possible and address the fact that the women are in the working class and the working class in the United States has a large percentage of people of color. So I think that in part, it's really crucial to say like, hey, wait a minute, you want to organize the working class? Well, I mean, let's look at the working class, right? This is, you know, don't give into the kind of weird fantasy that's always been wrong, that the working class um, is just white men. That's just never, ever been the case. And the, the fantasy that that is the case is one of the things that always hurts um, organizing. So I think that would be my, my first pass is, is to wonder um, why that attachment, right? And what do they think they're holding on to when they do that? Because it's got to be a fantasy that's not useful for anybody. And it's also unfair to the history of the socialist left. I mean, the socialist left has long shown interest in, in matters of, at least portions of it, have long shown interest in, in these issues of race and gender and sexuality. Oh, for crying out loud, you're totally right. I mean, even if you just go to Lenin, right? Lenin um, affirmed the importance of national self-determination, right? He was emphasizing the fact that there were multiple ethnic, cultural um, groups in Russia at the time, and that it should not be the case that one group determines everything that happens to them. So already with Lenin. And then in the United States, um, for all its problems, uh, the Communist Party was at the forefront of, of the struggle against um, white supremacy, the struggle um, on behalf of the rights of sharecroppers, the struggles against Jim Crow. I mean, the whole Scottsboro Boys case was led by um, the CP. So I think that there's something really false um, when contemporary leftists essentially adopt the liberal stereotype of socialist as not being concerned with race and class. I mean, they do an injustice to socialist and communist history. Well, it's, it's kind of strange to see these as somehow not material relations. I mean, <laughs> sex and gender have been very crucial to the division of power and property and labor throughout history. And obviously, race has been very important in, in uh, organizing the American labor market, you know, and elsewhere around the world. I mean, it's just the idea that somehow this is a distraction from the material mystifies me. 
Oh, one of the things that I find most exciting when I go back and read the old Bolsheviks is the work of Alexandra Kollontai, because she talks all the time about the changing, uh, changing gender roles in the family, being against um, patriarchy, needing to have equality within the family. She has tons of writing about um, prostitution and, and how prostitution is not a moral issue at all, but a class issue, um, a way that some women are having under capitalism have to um, find ways of earning wages. And so the thing is, is that the entire history um, is one of a kind of vibrant appreciation for the richness and diversity of working class life and the fact and the, and the creation of an alternative milieu that expresses this diversity and that uses the strength of this diversity to attack capitalism. Yes, and also uh, a lot of people on the Marxist left have been uh, very um, productive in developing an analysis of the role of unpaid labor of women, domestic labor, in uh, maintaining the system. So it's it's really something that we're pretty used to, and it's kind of funny that it's being forgotten both by um, our enemies and some of our friends. Yeah, I think some of the, um, coming out of, a, from academia, some of the most exciting work that I found recently is under um, the idea of social reproduction and looking at the way that capitalism reproduces itself through the production of uh, gendered, sexed, raced relations. And these this reproduction of capitalism um, happens via the family. And of course, as we know from Althusser, via the school, but that we don't understand capitalism at all if we don't see how it uses um, sex, race, um, gender to become the system and, and, and maintain itself as a system it is. I'm speaking with Jody Dean, professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges and author most recently of Crowds and Party from Verso. This whole opposition of you know class versus identity seems to me a, a, a false thing. It's almost a, a neurotic symptom, a fixation on some you know primitive idea that uh, we can't get past. How do we break out of this uh, very unproductive uh, cul-de-sac? The very first answer always has to be practice, right? Good old Marx's answer is practice and organizing and actual struggle. A comrade of mine, Hannah, gave me some really. Um, a really good insight um, a week or so ago when I was complaining about um, call-out culture, right? Because one of the things that many people find frustrating on the left is not just what appears to be the kind of brochialist phenomenon of ignoring race and class, but another kind of phenomenon of constantly calling out people for privilege and constantly trying to... Um, essentially undermine people at any step of the way and tell them, well, go do your homework and, you know, address the white supremacy within yourself and all of this. Yeah, I'm not going to do the work for you. Oh, yeah, that line. Oh, I know. It drives me crazy. So my friend Hannah, our com friend and comrade Hannah was saying, you know, we might be better off if we look at that phenomenon as what happens when people don't have a communist or socialist horizon to their politics, right? They feel really helpless. They don't see anything to do other than change attitudes and speak out. And so, and, and, and they don't have a forum for doing this other than social media or the dinner table. And so if we start to maybe recognize some of these phenomena as symptomatic of communicative capitalism or the kind of liberalization of the left, we see it as symptomatic of 
the loss of an organized political left, then we might be able to address it a little better, right? Rather than thinking these people are just bad, which is utterly unhelpful, we can start to see, oh, um, what we need to do is work better at um, building our left political organization. So I found that really helpful, right? To think about call-out culture as a symptom of what happens when people who really want to be involved in left struggle actually are not in organized politics. So um, I think the answer then is organized politics. Yeah, I, I keep thinking of the, back on that Le Tigre song, Get Off the Internet. <laughs> I guess it didn't take. Does that mean we discard the internet, uh, just like unplug, or uh, think about how to use it in different ways? One possibility might be if people, particularly folks on the left, who find themselves online a lot, um, engaging a lot, if we treated each other like comrades, right? So rather than thinking, okay, I need to score a point, um, rather than, than calling out every and little thing, maybe think, okay, how do I engage another person in a way where we're building something together? And sometimes these conversations actually do happen. Um, but folks have to be really conscientious about it. Now, on the one hand, that's just an attitude. And I'm pretty skeptical about um, a politics that focuses on attitude um, rather than you know, organized practice. But I mean, we're not, no one's going to give up social media right now. Um, it's also super useful for organizing events. But I think that if people are, um, you know, try not to treat other leftists as the enemy, that's a good start. <laughs> so how to do that? Um, <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> well, you know, actually at this point, like, I'm, my southernness might come in. I might just want to say, well, if, if you can't say anything nice, just nice, just tell someone, bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, but, uh, you know, here I am in Brooklyn. I'm not sure how well that works. <laughs> no, that one might not work. But then, and then it actually might be the case that um, folks need to really um, get off the computer, get off the phone, and go involve, get involved in organized practices, um, get involved in the actual work of organizing and participating in um, grassroots organizing. Now, that sounds like so preachy, but one of the things, like I found out, you know, I live up in Geneva, New York, and I've been working with a group that we all put together, a group of us put together called the Geneva Women's Assembly. And we've been doing um, activism in the area on behalf of neighborhoods that have been contaminated with lead and arsenic over 30 years. And no one will be surprised that the areas are primarily immigrant, people of color, working class. And the city didn't tell them that their um, yards were contaminated with lead and arsenic for over 20 years, and it knew. And so we've been um, doing a lot of organizing here. And one of the things that we find is that you know, rather than the primary issue being sex, race, class, gender, our issue is organizing is what is the language that we need to make sure organizers can speak when we go? When will people be home? What are the best ways to communicate? Which social spaces, like you know, usually churches, are going to be most likely to bring people out? So the questions are really, really pragmatic. And those of us who are doing organizing are attuned to things like you know, sex, race, class, gender. But as we do the, the practical work, it's much more um, about how people are living their everyday lives and what are the best ways to or what are the best ways to let them speak and organize. So I think that things that happen when you're actually involved in organizing are not the same 
issues that unfold on a social media debate. Now, how that how does that sort of organizing, which is very local and practical and you know limited in its scope, fit in with what you call the communist horizon? Well, one of the things that's been exciting for me is um, that two of the other organizers with me here in Geneva um, are in the same political party I, I'm in, right? So we're all in the Party for Socialism and Liberation. And we actually understand our local practice as a communist politics, right? We see it within the scope of a broad political horizon. What does it mean? So it's not just immediate, right? It's not just changing people's feelings. It's about the slow, steady work of trying to build class power. And um, being up here in upstate New York, we often think about what does rural organizing mean in the United States today? What kind of, of practices and tactics and time frame um, will be useful? And so everything becomes a lesson. Everything becomes a question of, oh, if we repeat this, um, will that be useful? Will it be not useful? And so I think that this, the long horizon of, or a long time frame of revolutionary struggle um, with an eye to a communist horizon makes it really useful for us. Like, there's, there's no kind of um, panic or anxiety around very specific things because we've got a long-term um, horizon. So then how do you put together you know, this local struggle in which you're using this struggle as a point of entry to a larger system but how do you, or a larger systemic critique and or a, a larger systemic organization? How do you make that bridge? Yeah, thanks for asking. Because um, I got to say, one of the things I always say is that local politics are fascinating to everyone involved and utterly boring to everybody else. And so it's really crucial to find ways to link together and hold up um, the whole, the wide variety of local grassroots frontline struggles. And so I've also been involved with the People's Congress of Resistance, which is going to be held at Howard University on September 16th and 17th. And what that um, Congress is going to do is bring together frontline organizers from all over the country under the general idea that we are all struggling for a society of the many. Right. The, I, I mean, if we think about it, all the different struggles, right, the anti-racist struggles, the prison struggles, the debt struggles, the environmental and pipeline struggles, all of these are actually one struggle against a capitalist system that is immiserating, that perpetuates environmental degradation, that relies on an unbelievably um, strong and immense um, carceral system. So these are all one struggle. And the People's Congress of Resistance is going to be um, bringing folks together to try to make the fact that this is one struggle much clearer for everyone. I was Jody Dean, professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith's Colleges in Geneva, New York, and author most recently of Crowds and Party from Verso. Earlier books of hers that she discussed on Behind the News were Blog Theory in 2010 and The Communist Horizon from 2012. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break.
us some of Get Off the Internet from La Tigra from their 2001 EP from the desk of Mr. Lady. Funnily enough, the band, which put out its last album in 2004, though it did some backup and other work in subsequent years, reunited in 2016 to do a deeply terrible song in support of Hillary Clinton called, Yes, I'm With Her. Watching the video for the song was a crushing experience. Next, Jason Wilson. Wilson, originally from Australia, is now based in Portland, Oregon. He's been covering the far right for The Guardian. Here he is to talk about the movement, who's in it and what they want, its past and its future. One of the striking features of the Charlottesville events was the confluence of two strains in the American far right, neo-Confederacy and neo-Nazism. Several analysts have rightly pointed out that overemphasizing the Nazi angle lets our own homegrown white supremacy off the hook. But it's also worth pointing out, as James Whitman did in this show a couple of months ago, that the U.S. had a strong influence on the Nazis. They studied our race and immigration law and also derived inspiration for the concentration camps from our own Indian reservations. When people say, this is not who we are, they're just wrong. But resistance to these fascists is also who we are. Here's Jason Wilson with more. You came from Australia uh, and have been here for a while. There are similarities in the political cultures of our two countries. Uh, there is certainly a, a, a racist right-wing tradition in Australia, um, and also one here. Uh, how would you compare and contrast the two? Australia is is really close in some ways to, um, you know, the Pacific Northwest and parts of the American West. It was founded um, as an exclusivist white utopia. Its founding act in 1901 was to exclude all kinds of communities of colour from the country and exclude them from immigration. And the Pacific Northwest, the Oregon Territory, certainly was started out in a really similar way. And that came at the end of a period, obviously, of, of genocidal colonisation. And that's also what we saw in the American West. So, And the revanchism you find in both countries is really, really similar as well. The big difference in Australia is that... Um, there's a limit to how insurrectionary that, that revanchism can become because of gun laws and what have you, but there's no such limit here in the United States. Yes, that's that was a frightening detail. And you mentioned uh, the, the founding documents of the Oregon Territories. Uh, you know, I think a lot of Americans don't appreciate just how white supremacist Oregon's history was and you know, the role of the Klan in the history. Uh, could you review that a bit? Yeah, I actually published something on this um, around the time um, of the stabbings we had here in Portland. And yeah, people told me about how Oregon's constitution actually had uh, an exclusionary clause to keep out African-Americans. Oregon, people in Oregon like to talk about how they were on the Union side in the Civil War, and they were against slavery, but, but they were against slavery. A lot of people in the territory were against slavery because they didn't want the competition from enslaved workers. Um, they wanted it to be a kind of white working man's paradise. So Oregon has remained um, and Portland have, have remained disproportionately white when you compare it with the, the rest of the country. Uh, and, and that caused them in the 80s and 90s to become a kind of happy hunting ground for white supremacists looking to looking to recruit and looking to make inroads because, you know, they weren't just weren't going to face as much resistance from communities of colour as they would in, in more diverse cities. Um, but, yeah, in the meantime, there was a Klan governor in the 1920s um, and he tried to ban uh, parochial Catholic schools and um, Jewish schools. Uh, so they were anti-Catholic and anti-Semitic as well as, as anti-black, um, the, the clan up here. And that, uh, I think that got hit on the head by the Supreme Court. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a long history in the Pacific Northwest of, um, you know, white nationalism. Yeah, it's, it's the simplest way to put it. And it's a history that's still with us. 
It's funny, you know, Portland has such a crunchy reputation of being, you know, liberal and tolerant and open, but uh, there's always this lurking behind it. Yeah, you know, that's reflected in the fact that in the last 20 or 30 years, um, historically, black neighborhoods have basically been cleared out, you know, and people have been pushed to the edges of the city as that real estate's become more desirable. And, and those communities were earlier created by practices of redlining. That reputation belies the fact that um, it's it's not a particularly diverse city. It's the widest major city in the country, uh, depending on how you calculate those things, but it's the widest large city in the country. And yeah, that people of colour, immigrants still have a tough time here because it's getting more and more expensive and they find it tough to get representation on, on city bodies. And yeah, it goes on. And does that extend northward up towards Seattle or is it more of an Oregon thing? Seattle's more diverse, and I think that's as a, pr- a product of recent history when it, where it became more of a center for manufacturing and the like. But but Seattle is still, I believe, majority white. Um, so it's nothing like, uh, you know, cities in the south or in the northeast um, that are much more diverse. If you go into rural uh, and, and provincial parts of Oregon and, and Washington, I think people from the northeast would be um, dumbfounded about how white these places are. We first uh, made contact uh, when you were covering the uh, the events in Burns, Oregon, the uh, that Oregon standoff. Whatever happened uh, with the perpetrators of that? Did they get prosecuted? Uh, did they get away with it? Yeah, there was a federal case uh, against them here in Oregon. The prosecution there was absolutely bungled. It was a it was a an all or nothing conspiracy prosecution with no kind of tiered charges as you might normally see. I get the impression that the prosecutor was thought it was a slam dunk and was trying to get a quick result, and they actually walked away from that. They're also being tried right now uh, in Nevada over the 2014 incident at the Bundy Ranch. There was a lot of overlap uh, between those two cases, and that, that trial's nearing its end, so we'll see what happens there. But I think I think that one's been handled a bit better, and I, I think some people are going go to go to jail for a fairly long time. But they got away with everything in Oregon. It almost seems too obvious to make this point, but uh, you know, if they, if they had not been white, uh, I imagine things would have turned out rather differently. Oh yeah, well, you know, we can speculate, can't we? But I, I, I imagine if a bunch of um, uh, brown Muslim men had occupied a bird ranch, they'd probably be dead. There's a complicated history there that probably needs to be acknowledged. I, I mean, I think that federal uh, authorities. You know, took some lessons from the 1990s when they really did come down hard on people and, and there was a big backlash to that. So, you know, Ruby Ridge, Waco, there was a kind of public perception that perhaps they had gone in too hard and, and in too gung-ho a manner and, and people had died as a result. And, and now I think that when they're dealing with these particular movements, they take a more patient approach. But, I mean, these particular movements are made up largely of white men. You were in Charlottesville, uh, and of course, much has been said and written about Charlottesville in the last few weeks, but what was your impression of what went on there? What drew people there? Was it love of the Confederacy, neo-Nazism? What, what was driving the, the forces of, uh, of reaction there? The first thing to say about it is that, um, you know, a lot of the rallies I've covered in the Pacific Northwest have had a more politically, you know, diverse, I mean, it's all on the far right, but a, a more politically diverse crowd, you know, people from the Patriot Movement, and you know a few a few neo Nazis sprinkled in there. This was a very Nazified crowd. This this was a very openly fascist uh, crowd, um, and it's indicative of the way I think that Confederate monuments, which used to be more of a regional concern, uh, in the moment we find ourselves in, um, 
we, we, we see people like this defending from all over the coming from all over the country to defend them as as monuments to whiteness and to um, white supremacy. Uh, and so they become kind of national tokens for a lot of these people. I've seen a lot of estimates of the crowd that was there that seemed really low to me. I've seen estimates as low as 500. I, I feel like just watching people marching in, um, I, I'd be more inclined to, to say it was somewhere up near double that in the park by the end of the day. Um, and that would make it the biggest neo-Nazi rally in, in decades in this country. Yeah, it was a mixture of, uh, I would say, openly neo-Nazi, neo-fascist, national socialist groups, groups that call themselves national socialists, uh, combined with neo-Confederates, which have historically been a more um, regional movement about resegregating and, and even seceding the South uh, so that so that white supremacy can be reinstituted as a matter of law. But but those groups have now, or at least, you know, the other Saturday, have, have found a, a kind of common ground in defending the statue of Robert E. Lee. And, you know, they found an occasion to, together, as far-right groups have been doing all year, uh, make an incursion into a liberal city, you know, uh, and I think that's what it's about as much as the actual monument itself. Well, I guess you'd have to be a liberal city to think about uh, removing a statue of Robert E. Lee, so they, that, that seems like the uh, natural terrain of struggle for people like this. Yeah, and the decision to remove this statue um, has given rise to uh, this was the third such rally in Charlottesville this year. In May, Richard Spencer had yet another torchlight rally. Uh, and then in June, the Klan came to town. There were 50 or, or, or so Klansmen who were surrounded by, you know, around a thousand counter protesters. Um, the Charlottesville police responded to that with gas weapons and, and lots of arrests. And I think people in Charlottesville were, were a little bit shocked by that. I think in the big cities, we're used to seeing cops act like that but um but but people in charlottesville seemed a little taken aback by the police response anyway they the unite the right rally the big one uh, which which i was at you know they organized for months for that and it was a national effort um and and you know um maybe somewhere between 500 and 1,000 people and i I'd, as i said estimate at the higher end of that but it doesn't sound like a huge number of people in the grand scheme of things but they shut the city down. Um, they killed someone, obviously. Two policemen also died in a helicopter crash. And they will have cost that community, you know, millions of dollars. You know, that event has really taken a lot out of that community. And, and they also terrorised the community for a whole weekend. I mean, the torchlight rally they had on Friday night uh, um, was clearly a, a direct allusion to, to things that not only the Klan did, but, but things that were done in Nazi Germany. And it, it was intended to intimidate people and... You know, the people I spoke to, it, it had kind of worked to do that. On Saturday, the governor of Virginia said that the police kind of held off because they felt outgunned by a second group who were a bunch of heavily armed militia guys who were who were manning the perimeter of this event, um, supposedly in the interest of protecting free speech and the security of both sides. No, 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 hold on a second. I've heard that claim. It's kind of weird to me to hear that a police department didn't act because it felt outarmed. What do you make of that claim? Was that true or was there something else holding them back? I think it's part of the truth. I think they were not prepared or underprepared for what confronted them. I think that more people showed up than they imagined would show up. And I think that more armed militia guys showed up than they were anticipating. I mean, mixed in with that is probably a bit of special pleading, a little bit of incompetence. 
um, you know, maybe on the margins, a little bit of complicity or sympathy with um, the people who are marching, at least initially, and at least from some police officers. But, but yeah, I think that's part of the truth. Uh, you know, th- these people were um, were armed to pretty much a military standard. Um, my colleague Joanna Walters had a piece in the Guardian about the equipment of just one of these groups who call themselves the New York Light Foot Militia. So they, they're from your neck of the woods, Doug. And they not only had uh, AR-15s and sidearms, automatic sidearms, but uh, they had level three body armor, which is supposedly capable of turning a 7.62 millimeter assault round. They had Kevlar helmets. You know, they had they, they were kitted out in a, in a pretty uniform way and, and kitted out at a level that paramilitary doesn't seem adequate, a, an adequate description of. I'm speaking with the Oregon-based journalist Jason Wilson, who's been covering the far right for The Guardian. This is all legal in Virginia, right, under open carry laws? Yeah, it's legal in most states. Uh, And this is the thing. The militia movement in the 90s, which I'm sure you remember, it it was largely a kind of rural and provincial phenomenon. You know, the thing then was was kind of compounds out in the woods and guys drilling in the woods. Um, Now, because of the way that gun laws have changed, um, the way that open carry... Uh, has been signed into law in, in many states. The end of the assault weapons ban in 2004, these guys are just strolling right into the middle of cities and there's nothing people can really do about it. And if you've got an open carry state and an open carry city, as as in Charlottesville, yeah, there's nothing you can kind of do to stop this. Um, and all of this stuff is, they're all basically consumer commodities now. And the country is, is flooded with AR um, patterned weapons. Um, you know, here in Oregon, I see people kind of trying to market them as hunting weapons. This is what's changed in the interim, I think, uh, with, the, with the 90s militia movement. And I think confronted with, you know, the New York Lightfoot militia had 30 people on their own. I, I saw at least 50, 60 militia guys on the perimeter of that park. Um, now, they're not marching into the park, but they always seem to show up to defend and provide cover for for far-right events. Um, yeah, and I, I, I would accept that the, the police were surprised and confused about what to do about that. Since uh, Charlottesville, there's been a lot of controversy about the role of the anti-fascist groups. Cornell West claimed that they saved his life uh, and that of his comrades. Uh, you got Noam Chomsky denouncing them as a gift to the right. Tell us what you saw there. What, what, did, what was your evaluation of their contribution? The first thing to say is that the counter-protest was was diverse, um, um, not only much more diverse in terms of gender and 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 race than the than the Nazis, but politically diverse. Um, there are a lot of groups from the radical left there. You know, the DSA were there in in pretty large numbers. Um, so it wasn't a bunch of masked, you know, anti-fire or whatever by any means. Um, and I, you know, I would say the majority of counter-protesters were were totally non-violent. Um, and some of them were armed, but far fewer than on the other side. But with that said, yeah, there were people who embraced tactics of, of either passively trying to block the pa- passage of these folks, um, and the clergy did that, as well as as well as well other secular counter-protesters. And there were people who decided from pretty early on that they needed to, blocking their path meant physically resisting them. Um, I saw, I was at the bottom of the stairs when, the fascists first approached Cornell West's group of about 20 clergy who had their arms linked at the top of a set of stairs which led to the park. Their intention, they said, was to, was to kind of get themselves arrested, but, but the cops didn't oblige there. So they, they actually had to face down these folks. And yeah, as those fascists approached, a lot of other counter-protesters 
you know, there were there were um, intermittent scuffles with these guys as they approached, but there were certainly efforts to kind of channel their movements, let them know that they were surrounded. And I, I think Cornel West is, is right in what he says. I, I think those clergy would have been facing a physical confrontation with these people that they, they weren't prepared for if it were not for, um, I suppose, more militant counter-protesters um, who, who were there to help them. A month before the Charlottesville events, you went to a conference of uh, American Renaissance, a group led by uh, Jared Taylor, who's been at this for a long time. What did you see there? Uh, what kinds of people came to it? And what, what, what motivates them? What do they talk about? The hardcore of, of Jared Taylor's group is, is, is the guys who've been banging on about this stuff for 20 or more years. And, you know, I actually talked to him and he said to me um, that for many years he just thought he was making a racket and he was just trying to record this this kind of dissenting white nationalist position on the right. And, and he wasn't expecting it to become a, a kind of mass movement. But what he had there, the other, you know, last month was um, a crowd that I would say was half young men under 35. He asked at one point who was coming to their first American Renaissance conference and about 80% of the hands went up. Um, there's a upper limit on how many people they can have at that conference. They have to hold it at a state park because when they go to private venues, they get shut down and there they've got First Amendment protections. Um, so he's got a, a, a kind of upper limit of 300 people. But but the makeup of that 300 people, he said, was, was really different to previous years. And he said there were a lot of younger people there, and, and that's what I saw too. Um, and it's the same kind of people I saw marching in Charlottesville, young millennial men, not the fabled white working class in, in my assessment, maybe downwardly mobile, but but they seem like, on both occasions, a lot of them seem like college kids to me. And and that's who's kind of filling the ranks of this movement, and that's that's how it's growing. And, you know, I think it's it's taken people like Taylor slightly by surprise and I don't know if he knows how to really push forward with this and take advantage of it, but people like Richard Spencer do. Um, and Richard Spencer really is someone who is in the Taylor mold, who's trying to give this a kind of respectability um, uh, and and have a kind of far-right respectability politics. But he understands the internet a lot better. He understands the modern media a lot better, which is why he ends up getting fashion shoots, more or less, in the Washington Post. Um, so, yeah, I think people like him know... Um, or think they know how to capitalize on this momentum and the the old hardcore group of older guys like taylor you know the the neo-confederates the guys from you know alabama and texas the 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 same old faces they'll still be around um the real question is whether the far right's able to sustain this this momentum it's had in recruiting a whole new strata of people do you understand what's driving them um, this is a vexed question, isn't it, Doug, on the left? I mean, there, there are lots of opinions about this. I think they sense a kind of weakness in, in liberal institutions. You know, the leadership does. Um, I think that's why they're coming into liberal cities and, and staging these kind of frontal assaults almost on these cities and, and these institutions. I think they sense that their ideas are no longer taboo in the way that they once were, and a lot of that is is down to things that happen online and, and, and possibly also down to the passing from living memory of the, of, the, of the historical struggle against fascism in the middle of the last century. As to the young men who are filling these ranks, one doesn't want to apologise for them um, and one doesn't want to say that under other circumstances they'd be on the left. I just don't buy that, really. But there is an appetite, obviously, out there for radical solutions to the kind of malaise that we find the country in 
And, you know, these guys are offering radical solutions. It's complicated. I think that sometimes I think that as a reporter, it, you know, it's, it's kind of above my pay grade. And I think historians um, and others will be duking this out for years to come. But, um, but yeah, I, 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 think, I think the, the main thing is that once upon a time, liberal institutions and even the mainstream conservative movement used to be able to shut these guys down pretty effectively. And now they can't, and and their movement looks dynamic. You know, it looks um, appealing to some people. People like Spencer have even managed to make it look slightly aspirational. Again, that's not to excuse people to who sign up to a set of genocidal beliefs. I, I don't want to do that. But um, in terms of broader sociological explanations, that'd be my stab at it. And how much are they inspired by Trump? Significantly, Trump's own destructive capacities when it comes to liberal institutions have been part of that story I'm offering. But but he offers them a figurehead. In the week following the Charlottesville events, when Trump appeared to, let's say, equivocate about whether Nazis were bad, um, you know, they took that as a kind of endorsement. They took it as an indication that he wasn't going to come down hard on them. They took it as an indication that he had some sympathies for what they were doing. So he acts as a figurehead and he acts as someone who who gives these people not only rhetorical cover, but, you know, someone who's at the head of a government that can choose or choose not to really go after these groups. And, you know, federal pressure has had a lot to do with the, the, the collapse of, of far-right movements in the past. And, you know, it's an open question as to whether they're going to encounter any pressure from that direction now. And in Boston uh, this past weekend, uh, they tried to stage a rally, cynically named Free Speech Rally, and they were outnumbered by counter-protesters, I don't know, 200, 400 to 1. Now they've subsequently canceled a whole bunch of rallies across the country. Is this a good way to stop these characters, just flood the zone? I think so. In my observation, these events turn violent and these groups engage in violence when they either outnumber people, as they did on the Friday night, or, or where, where things are close and evenly matched. And that's probably what happened on Saturday. And, you know, I've seen that happen in Portland a number of times now where, where event their events just degenerate into, into running brawls. Anti-fascists have consistently said there won't be violence at these events if these guys are heavily outnumbered. And, and you know, this discussion will, will go on, but that seems to have been borne out by what happened in, in Boston. So um, I think, yeah, if people show up and if these groups are heavily outnumbered, it seems to me, from, from my observations and experiences, that, that the prospect of violence actually diminishes and, and they really do feel like or get the message that their views aren't acceptable to a broad slice of the community. So what's next in your calendar? Do they have any events uh, in the wings? Currently, I'm taking a week off. I think um, there's, there's a number of events that are meant to be happening this weekend. Uh, I believe they're going to Berkeley again this weekend, although I want to I check that. Charles Murray's giving a talk out in uh, Idaho this weekend that a pretty broad slice of progressive groups are trying to complicate, if not shut down. I, I may go out to Boise to check that situation out. Um, I don't imagine that they're going to they're going to stop trying to do this and stop trying to probe um, and trying to, um, uh, you know, rally around symbols like Confederate monuments. So, and if it's not Confederate monuments, it'll, it, it'll be something else. I think they're still feeling pretty confident, despite the fact that, you know, the washout from, from Charlottesville hasn't been great for a lot of them. A lot of them have had websites shut down, lost their jobs, you know, people have been doxxed. Um, but still, I, I think they're going to keep trying because... 
I think it's kind of now and ever for a lot of these groups in terms of getting out there, um, getting in the streets, you know, occupying public space and continuing to challenge liberals and the left. And we shouldn't underestimate how big a component of, of their beliefs that is, you know, and, and how serious they are about seeing the left as a kind of existential enemy. You know better than me, Doug, how fractious the American left can be. Um, but I think that at a lot of these events, when people do show up and you do get a kind of diverse crowd, you do see a level of solidarity and, and physical bravery that's that's quite inspiring and a level of, of confidence in the political and, and, and moral principles um, that, that draw people to, to kind of push back on these guys. So so that, that gives me cause for optimism. People should reflect on that. Like, you know, we may not always even agree on the tactics for, for pushing back on, on these folks, but... Um, you know, the example of people pulling Cornell West's group out of trouble is, is, is a good example there. You know, people at these events, they, they cooperate um, and um, look out for each other in a way that's really, really quite impressive. That was Jason Wilson, who's been covering the far right for The Guardian. That bit about the militiamen being outfitted like the U.S. Army in Iraq is terrifying. It's surreal that people can parade around city streets like that. What does open carry do to the possibilities for peaceful protest? That's it for me, Doug Henwood. After Jason Wilson's moving invocation of solidarity, here's a taste of the other side of the effective dialectic. The other day, I watched my TV in shock as the opening words of the following song were addressed to a sandwich in a subway ad. As an act of lyrical reparation, I needed to supply the subsequent material that the capitalists suppressed. I want to destroy you by the soft boys. Till next week, bye. Just...